It's all part of the plan. DC Talk right here on Get Into Geek. My name is Mitch for episode 17, talking all things DC on the big and little screen. Little screen we're going to be talking about later as we do each and every episode. My journey towards the end of the Arrowverse TV series. But also some uh, big screen stuff happening right now. Some big screen stuff to come. And also a little bit of a look back to some big screen hitting some type of anniversary. But uh, it's hard to go past Blue Beetle for us here in Australia at least because it's finally hit cinemas. It's been out in the United States for... I don't know, nearly a month, if not already. And it sucks that we've had to wait this long, especially for those of us that are keen to see it. At least in my own opinion, the trailers haven't been that great. But the positive news that I've heard from the States is that the movie hasn't been done justice by its own trailers. So I'm keen to finally see it. It hit cinemas yesterday as I record this and uh, hopefully have a review coming up on our next episode of the podcast. The anniversary that I'm talking about not necessarily for a film, it's kind of a, a bit of a cheat sort of anniversary, but uh, there was talk this week, the fact that it has now been 20 years since Christian Bale was cast as Batman, which seems crazy. This year, 2023, we did of course celebrate 15 years since The Dark Knight was released back in July, which made a bit more sense. It feels like it's been, you know, it's been a hot minute since that movie did come out and broke all the ground that it did, Heath Ledger's great performance, the way that it changed the cinematic landscape, uh, especially the superhero movie genre landscape that some would say we're still kind of recovering from. And uh, then we look back a little bit even further and suddenly 2003, we got Christian Bale cast as Bruce Wayne Batman for Christopher Nolan, the director that most people had never heard of, making this origin story, going back to Batman, post-Batman and Robin era. People are still shivering about it at the time. And 20 years now, which seems crazy. Someone did point out an even crazier stat on Twitter this week was that uh, while Twitter was recognizing and, and remembering the anniversary 9-11, it's been 22 years since that fateful day back in 2001, that uh, the anniversary of Christian Bale's casting was happening around about the same time. These two things were trending on the same day. And someone pointed out... Did Warner Brothers announce their new Batman on the second anniversary of 9-11? Is that what happened? Did they not wait a day? Did they not read the room? Did they not think it would be that big of a deal because it wasn't the first anniversary? I don't know. Maybe the memo got sent out really late, really early, one day either side of September 11, 2003. I'm not too sure. But 20 years since Christian Bale, many people's definitive Batman, not everyone on the show. We know that. I love those films. Others on the show here. Really like those films, and someone in particular, Maddie, does not like those films. But uh, a Batman who uh, was, what, the first Batman, really, I guess, live action to play him in three consecutive films. Prior to that, seems crazy that for uh, the rest of us in the room, Michael Keaton continues to be the definitive Batman, the Batman, our Batman, our childhood Batman, and he only ever played Batman twice on the big screen, which seems crazy. Val Kilmer, obviously, once, George Clooney once by that stage, and then we get Christian Bale three times, same character, same director, their own secluded little trilogy, and obviously since then, Affleck has taken it further. Keaton has come along and played the character for a third time, and, uh, well, we're just waiting to see who James Gunn and co. decide to cast as Batman for the future of the DCU. So that's uh, not coming up on any episode anytime soon. We cannot imagine. Well done in the future. We'll talk about that. But the next thing to come out on the DC front, Blue Beetle's happening right now, still in cinemas out and around the world, and right now in Australia, as we just heard it come out yesterday, Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom comes out on Boxing Day here in Australia, so late December, around the world. And it's kind of been the film that 
many, whether you're a hardcore DC fan or whether you're a DC hater, somewhere in the middle, casual fan, it doesn't really matter. People are wondering whether this movie was even coming out. And I guess if you're a really casual moviegoer, you wouldn't even be aware that there was a movie to question whether it was coming out because we haven't seen anything about this movie We've seen a couple of snippets here and there and like a, a DC look at their future films. And obviously we, as fans of this stuff, we know that it was coming out. But also it was supposed to be out December 2022. And it became a really big deal long before then when they decided to reshuffle their release schedule. And well, you had Aquaman 2 in December and then six months later you were going to have The Flash in June 2023. So if we're moving Aquaman back to December 2023, almost a full year after it was supposed to release, but The Flash is staying still, how is that going to work? Continuity-wise, are these movies even going to be related? And by that stage, we we knew that the James Gunn thing was happening, the new DCU, the, the wiping the slate clean of all the films and continuity before. What will this mean? And how is that going to relate to The Flash and the fact that it was going to kind of keep the DCEU, I know that was never the official name, but as we come to know it, the Snyderverse-esque and, you know, friends ongoing. If Flash was going to be the end of it and and the reset that we all expected it to be, which I guess you could kind of look at it as being a reset of sorts, but that's for a review for another episode all of a sudden Aquaman is going to come out and just exists as if the Flash never happened? I don't know. I mean, as we come to know, those of us that have seen it, spoiler alert for the next 10 seconds of the podcast for The Flash, Aquaman shows up at the end in a post credit sequence that has nothing to do with his own story, nothing to do with his own sequel, but he is there. So Aquaman, though, uh, is coming out in December and everyone's sitting here thinking, we're nearly three months away from that release date and we've not seen a poster. We haven't got a trailer. We haven't got a teaser trailer. We haven't got an announcement trailer. Where is this movie? And then obviously the, the conspiracy theories, the haters out there are like, well, it's going to get the Batgirl treatment and, and all the talk from those that pretend or at least think or maybe do know that they know someone who has seen it or, or heard from sources within Warner Brothers that it is near unwatchable. And, you know, the first Aquaman was was definitely different than the Snyderverse films of the time. You know, we were coming off whatever those movies had been. Justice League comes in and we knew that that was going to be different for a reason, but I think everyone expected, despite Snyder seemingly being removed at that point and the the release the Snyder Cut movement was starting to, well, starting to get a life on its own, but everyone still expected that the the Aquaman movie and story would kind of carry on at least similar tones to, to what we'd seen that character in before. And then it was very colourful, it was very loud, it was very big and bright and, you know, there was pop music in there and it was, it was you know, CGI fest. It was, I'm going to say, different to what many of us expected that movie to be. So if they were going to go more in that direction and James Wan coming back as director, maybe he was going to stick to the same styling and the same tone that he had gone for in the first film, but just go bigger and better. I mean, this movie did make over a billion dollars. Some people have since called that some type of anomaly. It doesn't matter. That movie made money. The studio are going to want to, hey, well, they just, the audience seemed to like it. Just just do that, but, but bigger. But we haven't known what to expect about this film because we haven't seen anything of it. And then a wonderful rumor went around online last week, and I certainly nearly bought into it and nearly commented on it and, and passed it around to members of the team here that this stinks of WB, this stinks of the luck that they would have and, and, and their sort of track record of handling things, that the rumor went out 
that Aquaman 2 had been lost by the studio. It did not exist in any type of physical copy. It did not exist on their digital servers. The movie did not exist. Now, that seems ridiculous, but there's long been this... uh, Maybe urban legend, and I have heard some truth to it and, and, and confirmations from legitimate sources along the way, but the, the actual story is different to the legend. But the story about Toy Story 2, different film, but still this movie was nearing its completion and it got wiped from the Disney Pixar servers. And I, that's that's at least the story that goes along and that someone who was at home, I believe maybe she was on maternity leave, she had the only copy of this film on some type of removable hard drive and was able to bring it back in and save that film and, and all the money, the time that had been spent on producing the sequel to still one of the great animated movies of all time. And seemingly WB weren't going to be in a position to have had the same type of hero show up for Aquaman 2. Now, when you actually look at the graphic that went around with that rumor last week, it was from Variety, which, hey, great source, reputable source. And then you realize it's not spelt right and it's Variety with an E at the front rather than an A. And uh, Variety, um, not a real thing. So that clearly was not a, uh, a rumor. That went out on the weekend, Monday... Warner Brothers releases an announcement trailer saying that the full trailer is coming out on Friday and that the movie was coming out on Boxing Day. So whether or not they got fed off that rumor to actually finally release something, here we were. It was about to come out. We were finally going to get to see it. Now, I haven't watched it. I'm going to watch it now. I'm not going to have you suffer through listening to me watch a trailer and say nothing because I hate those reactions where people just speak over the top of what they're apparently reacting to and pretending like it's the first time. I'm going to press play and come back immediately and share my thoughts on Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. Four years ago, I was basically unemployed. A wanderer with no home. I like that. I like that they continue to do that, actually. the uh, Right at the end of the trailer is uh, they tell you where you can go and buy comics and you should be reading up on Aquaman, which is something great DC have been doing uh, with the last couple of uh, movie trailers. Um, all right. Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom out uh, December 26 here in Australia. That actually went by really quick because it's a 2 minute 46 second trailer. That is, I think once you go past 220, and I know it's barely 30 seconds longer than that, but... Uh, yeah, a lot going on. Um, okay, in chronological order, I was kind of you know writing notes down there. He's a husband. He's a father, as his narration tells us at the start. Uh, he's hanging out with his dad. He's got his um, actual Aquaman like suit hanging up on a clothesline uh, out in the back deck, um, which is kind of fun. So it's uh, very bright. It's very loud. It seems to play a little darker than what I. Well, you know what? I, I dare say, I've never rewatched Aquaman, to be fair. I, I saw it once at the cinemas, never rewatched it. I didn't mind it when I watched it. Certainly didn't hate it or anything. I just haven't rushed back to, to rewatching it. But I, I probably remember it having a, a lighter tone than what it probably did. So, first watch of that trailer makes me think that it has a slightly darker tone than what I remember that movie happening. But in fairness, it's probably a very similar toned uh, film. Uh, Nicole Kidman, I don't even think that I knew that she was she was back for this, to be fair. Like, it makes sense where I kind of remember her character ending up in the first film, but uh, I don't think that I ever uh, knew that. 
I don't know whether Tamora Morrison makes it out. You see that in the trailer, Black Manta's narration and a voiceover talking about the fact that he's he's going to kill Aquaman and everything that he loves and stands for. Blah blah blah. We see Aquaman's human father's house on fire. Does that mean Tamora Morrison is getting killed? Hope not, because I love I love Tam. I love to see him back, um, small capacity or otherwise. Uh, Orm is obviously back. Patrick Wilson uh, looking cut as shit. I mean making his Conjuring films, he doesn't really need the body work, you know what I'm talking about, but in this, he definitely did not miss Chest Day, so I will give him that, another collaboration with James Wan, so he's definitely come back in that sort of similar, I guess, to what we saw over in the Marvel side, Thor The Dark World. The evil brother, evil stepbrother was the villain of the first film, he's been imprisoned, come to the second film, there's a greater threat from the outside, and our hero has to reluctantly team up with their evil stepbrother, we get a trident MacGuffin in there. They kind of, you know, give us the the ley line on uh, on what that is along the way. Doesn't really matter. There's something that the bad guy has and or wants, and the good guys have got to get it before he does. Otherwise, bad things will happen to many, many people. So that could be literally anything, and the movie would still play out uh, exactly the same. The other interesting point was, and and Maddie had uh, texted me earlier this morning. I hadn't seen the trailer obviously until now, and he he said, "Hey, it's out." Have a drink every time you see Amber Heard in the in the trailer. And I wrote back to him, Will I be sober? And he wrote back, Yes, you will, because we get exactly half a second, maybe less than that, of Amber Heard in this trailer, which uh, was I guess the big talking point, sadly, in the film's production was, well, with everything going on between her and, and Johnny Depp, you know, he'd lost his role in uh, in the Pirates films and and Amber Heard was looking bad in in the ongoing court battle. I know Johnny Depp did some stuff. That was a hot mess. Both of them very messy people, and that whole thing, as public as it was, was was gross details, entertaining to watch if you're a reality show type pig, and I'm not, but I certainly like the juicy details that were flowing out of uh, out of that trial. But uh, the big talk was, well, if you know Johnny Depp's paid for certain things by losing, you know, a billion dollar franchise and a lead role in it. Whether or not that's enough for what he's alleged to have done. Amber Heard, well, she should get kicked out of uh, Aquaman as well. I mean, you know, she's a secondary character at best in that franchise. If we, It's not quite the same sort of thing if people were looking to that as being some type of, what, justice for Johnny? I, I don't know what people were asking for or punishment for Amber Heard. I mean, sure, it's a big franchise and it might have been a payday if, if things would have worked out differently. But uh, yeah, she gets exactly one shot, which... Ahead of the trailer coming out today, I did read something earlier in the week, and whether it was James Wan or, or someone else closely uh, related to the film, writer, producer, and they were saying, look, this was never meant to be a, a mirror-heavy film. It was supposed to be about Arthur and his brother reluctantly teaming up. It was more of a buddy cop film between the two of them, which, you know, we, we got the Arthur and Mira buddy cop in the first film, those two teamed up and didn't really like each other throughout that movie. So we're getting that exact same type of story just with somebody else along the way. Had we have gotten Mira and a very similar story, it would have been way too similar. And it's like, well, why are we doing it? Who knows? That trailer might go on to produce a film that plays out exactly the same as the first movie. And we'll be asking that question in late December, early January. But that's what we've got to deal with. The other part about this movie, which the trailer was not going to suggest one way or another, it might be for a later full trailer, but uh, we're not going to get anything here, is whether or not and how much, if so, this movie is related to Jason Momoa's previous films where he starred as Aquaman. 
namely the hashtag Snyderverse. And James Wan did come out uh, a day or two ago and say, look, it, he was asked whether the Ben Affleck or, or Michael Keaton's Batman will appear in the film because there was, at one stage, Jason Momoa, I think, put up a video of himself in the back lot of Warner Brothers walking around trailer to trailer and he's sort of got a selfie going on and he walks up, knocks on a door and Ben Affleck's there. And it was seem everyone online went nuts saying, confirmation, Batman is in the film. I mean, no, he wasn't in a bat suit and they didn't talk about the film. J- Jason Momoa just went up and saw a guy that he'd starred with in a, you know, in a film or two prior to that. And that was kind of it. Now, would I have happily seen Batman in it? Yeah, sure. Do we get like some kind of crazy bat sub? And if they, at the time, they were still maybe going to be building up this, this Justice League, even though if it, if it started off poorly reception wise, why not? If they're going to keep making them, why not have these characters sort of jump over and star and feature and cameo in, the, in each other's films? It made sense. But that has seemingly been cut. And James Wan was asked if either of those Batmans, the Flash's Batman, Ben Affleck's Batman, are going to appear in this film. And he said, the best thing I would say about this movie is that it is not connected in any way to any of those films. That's the bottom line. I mean, sure, it's not connected to what Justice League or Batman v Superman, except for the fact that Aquaman was in both of those, the same Aquaman portrayed by the same actor who appeared in the previous Aquaman film, and that quite clearly precedes this film because of the Patrick Wilson starring as Orm and the way that that film ended, where this film seemingly picks up. I don't know, but that's apparently the quote. It's it's not connected, and will this be the end of Jason Momoa as Aquaman, or at least in its current iteration, do we see him come back and reprise his role as Aquaman, but it's a different Aquaman. You kind of can't see it happening as much as we would rather him stick around and Ezra Miller not. The way they left off with that film, like Ezra Miller could come back as The Flash. Will that happen? No. Could Jason Momoa? Yes. Should it happen? Maybe. Will it? Probably not. Although he seems to be on some type of good terms with WB, with James Gunn, and maybe he'll come back as, uh, I don't know, Lobo. That seems to be the talk. We'll see what happens. All that's in the future. Right now, though, I'll go back to something in the past. My journey through the Arrowverse as it uh, was nearing its end, at least. We're still like two and a half seasons to go in The Flash, but uh, this was the beginning of Superman and Lois, which is the only one of these shows that I'm still talking about that has survived the cuts so far. It will be back for a season four, but we go back to where it all began and when it uh, came back from uh, a very early hiatus uh, in uh, early season one. But uh, I'm also talking about Legends of Tomorrow, season six. I'm never sure why. As well as The Flash, midway through Season 7. But kicking things off with Batwoman Season 2, Episode 14, Within Limitations. Batwoman is faced with a new challenge when Gotham's addicts become ravenous for more than the next fix. Nice uh, short little synopsis there. And it was also uh, later retitled. I said it was called Within Limitations. It was actually retitled And Justice for All at some stage after release, which makes a lot more sense once you've seen the episode. And it's pretty hard to talk about this ep without going straight to the end. Luke shot multiple times by a trigger-happy officer of the law. Now, this episode released a year after the events of George Floyd's death at the hands of the Minneapolis police. You, there's no way you could be under a big enough rock to not have heard about that story. But surely this is Batwoman going all Supergirl and getting all real-world social justice in its in-world narrative. Not that that's necessarily a bad thing, but 
while the show has touched on these sort of issues in the past, and you only have to go back as far as episode one of this new season, when Luke and Mary asked a stranger named Ryan for the Batsuit back that she'd found, and she started rattling out racial statistics in her response. Batwoman, though, as a show, has never quite made an entire episode out of those issues. That's no longer the case. And when I say a year after Floyd... I'm talking within a week of the first anniversary. There is no way that this story and this show coming out at that time was a coincidence. Along the way, every moment that led up to the end was a little exaggerated in the character motivations. The arrest of Ryan, Sophie being locked up. Hell, even one-note Tavaroff revealing himself to be more vigilante with a badge than law enforcement officer once it got to the end and going into the attic's den. All of them seemed to get to the next step for the sake of the ending they wanted rather than what the scene itself was dictating. And here I was thinking the big outcome of that storyline was Sophie leaving the crows. Luke goes and gets shot. Now, is he going to die? Of course not. Does this bring on what I know of the season coming and him donning a suit? Absolutely. The B-plot this week continues on from Alice discovering Kate is alive and now wearing the new face of the old Cersei Sionis, but after carrying the weight of the last couple of episodes, isn't anywhere near as interesting. Alice interrogated the Mad Doctor to undo Kate's brainwashing, but before the how-to is revealed, Ocean kills her and claims it for Alice's own good. I've just watched that episode, and even to me, that sentence sounds ridiculous. When did Ocean come into it? You've also got Mary and Commander Kane talking through his drug issues and how the why is actually worse than the act itself. And then the underlying thread of this episode, the storyline probably not given as much attention given how it sounds, zombies! Or at least flesh-eating drug users. So some snake bite variant makes people go hungry, really hungry. So hungry, they'll take a bite out of people. So not actually zombies, thank God. But I like the idea that in world, some people started biting or eating parts of other people and everyone else just starts referring to them as zombies. Like we, in our real world, we would do that. And in fairness to Agent Tavaroff, we'd also all probably go vigilante on flesh-eating drug addicts killing people across the city if we were about to be consumed by other human beings, right? No? Just me. Moving on. And the other big thing came early on with uh, Wallace Day finally getting herself on screen for more than two seconds as the new face of Kate Kane. And knowing this isn't a long-term thing, it's already a shame that this can't be the eventual fix but then again there's no real reason they couldn't have just recasted from the get-go whoops wrong theme song but man that bad guy okay first of all the synopsis the legends find themselves in 2045 trying to defeat an alien warrior which leaves zari no choice but to enter a popular singing competition Ava has finally had enough of Rory's behaviour and, with Spooner's encouragement, gives him some tough love. Okay, back to the bad guy. I am a fan of the OG Power Rangers, so it is no slight on them. Maybe one of the more recent seasons, but damn, that bad guy. He was a lot. I mean, this show is such an insane 180 from talking about Batwoman, which is weaving in real-life Black Lives Matter, systemic racism and police violence into the narrative to legends going to the future to save the world from an invading race by taking them on in Eurovision light. 
I will give them this, the idea that the title of the episode is called The X Factor, E-X, X, Zari dealing with her ex, but also they're on a singing show, The X Factor. You get it. Uh, it's about as creative as it sounds, but I will give them that little plus. We just didn't even get much character stuff along the way. Rory is sad that they haven't found Sarah, and Zari and Constantine break up before they make up. The only step further we really take, for me, is that Sarah is on a planet with multiple clones of Ava, and we meet her big bad... Maybe? Look, to be fair, I will give them credit for one more thing. They actually did the thing! There was a problem in time, and to fix it, they actually travelled to before it happened and stopped it! Thank God. Back to the top, what I uh, did pick up in the credits, uh, I mean, it's been happening forever, but I keep getting reminded of it, is that Matt Ryan... John Constantine, is continually referred to and credited as a special guest, even though he is just as much a part of this cast as anybody else on it. Maybe it's a great contractual thing. Maybe he picks up more per episode by being a special guest. Who knows? Look, like this review, this show is kind of all over the place, and I just genuinely hate the advice for people to, quote-unquote, just enjoy something for what it is. People only tend to say that sort of thing about a show or a movie that is a guilty pleasure. Something that people understand is uh, subjectively, no, objectively bad, but are okay with it because they did get enjoyment out of it, but want to excuse their behavior and not look embarrassed in front of other people. I mean, no one says that about a good film. No one came out of... Oppenheimer this year and said, well, you just got to enjoy it for what it is. No one in the lead up to last year's Oscars, any of the nominations, no one comes out of those films and goes, well, it's good. You just got to enjoy it for what it is. They say that about Transformers. They say that about Thor, Love and Thunder. But with this show, it's like anything goes, but also why bother? It's just, it's different to what it was last week. It's different to what it will be next week. And it's certainly different from the show I talked about five minutes ago. In much more positive news, though, I finally, finally get to hit play on this piece once again. And look, what a way to welcome this show back. This great opening action scene. Obviously, it picks up from, I mean, as far as it was released six weeks ago with Tag having hurt Jordan Kent and Superman rushing back and making sure that his son's okay, racing off after Tag, who's got Flash-like speed by this point, and Superman is flying after him until the fact that Tag causes or is about to cause this monstrous rail accident. Superman has to do some very Superman-y type action to stop it, and by that stage... It's done. Cut to credits. And it was just such a welcome back to this show and what it can do. And talk about 180s. Going from Batwoman into Legends, but now Legends back to Superman and Lois. I mean, I'm going to be honest now. This is by far my favorite of these four shows this week. And this season so far, Superman and Lois is my favorite show. I said after episode one that it just it feels so different. It's paced so differently. It feels like it's had some time to breathe along the way. And that they've got this ongoing story thread that has it's been slowly building since episode one. But it's never been at the expense of the weekly episode. And vice versa, the weekly episode has never been sidelined for for the sake of the ongoing seasonal story. We get Morgan Edge slowly digging more of his claws into the town of Smallville. We get multiversal Lex Luthor getting closer to Lois, who by the end of it starts to suspect that he is not who he says he is. 
We've got Jordan going through some hell. We've got Jonathan looking after him. And we've got Superman, or more so Clark Kent, having to deal with it more as a human than he is able to as a superhero. Which is where this show is going to butter its bread. Not just because it's going to have a limited CGI compared that to a Superman film, but it is more about who these characters are as people. There's just great moments and performances along the way and even if it has fallen off along the way we certainly got all that in the early days of Arrow we certainly got all that in the early days of The Flash but as these series have gone on they've just sort of been very comfortable in their formula and stuck with where they are and forgotten about some of the stuff that I think made us fall in love with the show in the first place so Superman Lois into its third season it's been renewed for a fourth this thing could absolutely lose its wheels along the way but we're six episodes into the entire series I'm two and a half seasons behind and call me naive, I still really enjoy the show. The Flash Family Matters Part 1. Iris is pushed to the limits, is she? As she seeks to uncover the mysterious truth about Psyche. Barry initiates a new training system that could potentially backfire, while Joe and Cisco make life-altering decisions. And don't they indeed? Iris pushed to the limit. Must have been a different episode. Again, what another 180. Now, in fairness to The Flash, the improve from Legends into Superman and Lois this week, far greater than the fall back from Superman to The Flash. But still, it was a shift. Now, I guess I've just never cared about Psyche as a villain in the limited time he has had on screen. Whether it's the scary mask, the, the, the raspy, echoey voice, or the fact that he's just always standing around. And in those wide shots filmed from up top, looks quite small as well. So you've got this very short, very thin, undisclosed person behind a mask standing still the entire time, yet we're supposed to be inherently fearful of him. I've never given him much thought, despite what I just said. And then you have the freshly brought back to life Alexa, who has that feeling like she's about to become a series regular vibe about her, though I can't see the show being allowed the budget to properly render the Fuerza alter ego to give Alexa a point of difference on the team on a regular basis. But these two are critical to the episode's narrative. Barry wants Alexa recruited to help herself and the team against the Speed Force and to stop Psyche. And while we have so many others of these forces around, can we just stop calling them the Flash's children, please? I've said it every week for the last three weeks. I thought the most disgust that I would be in a piece of dialogue was Iris and Barry calling each other their lightning rods. <laughs> but... The, the, the for, but the forces being their children and them referring to them as parents and having birthed them, it's just like, it's, it's too much. Guys, stop trying to make it a thing at this point. Now, this episode had a weird ending. You get the inevitable fight with the bad guy. It goes the way that many of them have this season with Barry and whoever is with him talking down whoever the villain might be rather than physically defeating them. It's actually a really nice change, a good development for Barry as a superhero. But then in the very next scene... We get this really weird tension between Psyche and Alexa, as as well as Team Flash greeting Psyche with an arsenal of weapons. It's as if the previous scene never happened. And then what feels like it should have been the natural end of the episode, Joe up and quits the Central City Police Department, not wanting to be associated with Kramer's campaign against metahumans anymore, and especially where he sees her taking it. Now... I'm not sure where he goes from here, as Joe being a cop is so much about what makes that character him from the first episode. But on the other hand, it does make sense. Joe, I love him. 
but he has not been a great cop in the way that Kramer puts it by the book. Now, he works for the show and he works for the show's main characters, but when Kramer puts it to him that there are meta-criminals that went missing after being arrested that we all know as audience members went on to either Diet Star Labs, be imprisoned there, or released by Team Flash after a very late redemption arc. She's got a point. To the outside world, none of this makes sense. Hell, I'm actually glad that we get to see Barry do some CSI work in this episode. We can go half a season before being reminded that he has a day job that pays his, what I'm sure is a very expensive due to his prime home real estate, bills. I know this is superhero sci-fi stuff, but Barry's double life was so much a part of his story in those early seasons, the, of the, the juggling of going from one to the other. Now, I know a lot of those people that he was trying to hide his alter ego from are now part of the team, but I still feel like he does exist in this world where there are so many other people that he needs to interact with, except that most of the people the show puts in front of you it seems like every fourth person in Central City knows that he's the Flash. So the show actually forgets that that part of his life exists and that it needs to exist, even after seven seasons. And then we get the actual ending, the one that justifies the the very unnecessary part one, part two subtitle. I mean, we'll wait and see what part two actually does. But even by this stage, these shows are always ending on big cliffhangers. We don't need part one to justify another one. You get the Speed Force, you get Dion showing up to do what? I don't know, to everyone except Barry. I mean, they're unconscious on the floor, they're dead, I don't know. And look, to be fair, it worked. I immediately wanted to watch what happened next. Maybe more so than Superman. Like, I can't wait to watch episode number seven in Superman and Lois, but it did feel a little bit more final, even with that cliffhanger. This one just seemed to, like, come out of nowhere and stop very much in the middle of a scene. But unlike Batwoman, the second episode this week that ends with a secondary character being incapacitated, The Flash is actually back next week. Not the case with Batwoman, which is taking two weeks off. So uh, that little cliffhanger is going to hang around for a little while. Only three episodes of anything next week. We do get Legends of Tomorrow, Superman back with his second episode since the hiatus, and The Flash Family Matters Part 2. And hopefully share my first thoughts on Blue Beetle now that it's finally in Australian cinemas and I get the chance to see it over the weekend, hopefully by our next episode. That's all for It's All Part of the Plan. Enjoy your DC and we'll see you next week. Get into Geek.